The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you. Even before the global financial crisis of 2008-2009, the excesses of unchecked capitalism were manifest. What once seemed like a virtuous drive to maximize returns on investment for everyone came to seem like a race to the bottom. The wealthy got increasingly wealthy. Workers' wages stagnated. The environment suffered and parts of many countries were simply left behind. That according to a new book published by the Trilateral Commission called A New Spirit of Capitalism. It is clearly time for a reset. The book's authors go on to say, the problems got harder to ignore once the first bubble popped, and then came COVID-19, a pandemic which exposed weaknesses in globalization's relentless pursuit of low-cost production. The crisis highlighted instead the value of supply chain security and resilience, and a collaboration between state and business, emphasizes co-author Drew Erdman. Erdman goes on to point out that Russia's invasion of Ukraine demonstrates state and business can and do work together to mobilize assets and economies to serve strategic objectives. And that is what ha has to and needs to be a part of uh, the movement forward to re-envision capitalism as we know it. I invited Drew Erdman to join me for a conversation that matters about the role and manner in which a new spirit of capitalism can address the issues of our times. Drew, welcome. Thanks very much for the invitation. Looking forward to our conversation. This is a really interesting topic because many people will point to capitalism and say, but you're the, you're the source of so many of our problems, especially around the environment. Um, but then also, if we take a look at the concentration of wealth and power in the digital world, capitalism has created barriers that make it very difficult for others to enter. So what is it that we need to do in the realignment of the, the forces of capitalism or markets and governments and regulated uh, bodies to, to bring this together so that we can, uh, well, in essence, all benefit uh, and benefit from the energy that uh, innovators and investors bring to solving problems? Well, thanks, Stuart, for framing up the challenge so well. I mean, as we enter the 21st century, and this is a report to uh, the Trilateral Commission by a task force on the future of capitalism, because across the world, people have those anxieties that you were articulating. And it is worth putting in context the power of the markets and capitalism, on the one hand, has produced truly historic, when you take that perspective of hundreds of years, unbelievable delivery of prosperity across the world, doubling of life expectancies, not just overall growth of, of economies, but major reduction of poverty around the world. And if you even reflect upon the last few decades, literally hundreds of millions of people have emerged from the worst forms of poverty, pushing up towards middle class in particular in Asia. So the markets are an amazing force that is delivered for humanity. But, and there is a but here, there are tensions and there have been historically, and it goes back that there are these iterations through time of the adjustment between state and market, 
But we're at one of those critical turning points now, which you just articulated, I think, very, very well, these major themes and anxieties, which public opinion polling shows around the world, across industrialized OECD countries, this anxiety that is the system working? And this is before COVID. And it's exactly those themes that you highlighted that the Trilateral Commission wanted to focus on, which was the challenges of the environment and what that is doing for our prosperity, but our quality of life, well-being, and what is the future. Also, the challenges of the digital revolution, as you articulated, amazing changes, amazing potential, but also potentially exacerbating or accelerating inequalities. And then there's that theme of inequalities that do we have just societies? Is it fair when the top 1% globally has 19 times the wealth of the bottom 50%? Is that even sustainable, just from a pragmatic standpoint, putting aside the ethics of it? And those are the core questions that, that we were asked to explore in this task force effort for the Trilateral Commission. You know, I also note in the book, you, you kind of walk the reader through the history of capitalism, going back to Adam Smith's An Inquiry into the Wealth of Nations. But I was also struck by how you referred to uh, Max Weber's uh, work in the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism, you know, and that pursuit of profit was seen as being virtuous. Like the, the only way that you were going to be able to have that kind of success is, of course, if you were also pious and uh, followed the scriptures. Well, I think that that is a, a concept that's now being proven to be, well, inequitable in many ways, but out of touch with the reality of sort of the global reach of capitalism. Where are we moving to from that? Um, like, you know, I, I guess I'm going to expand my question a little bit because we also have to include Milton Friedman in this discussion and his maximizing a profit drove us to this situation where we were just always looking for the cheapest uh, cost of production with the highest rate of quarterly return. Um, <laughs> That has brought, as you pointed out, great uh, benefits, but it's also brought and highlighted uh, the inequities and uh, put such pressure on the environment. So if, if those are some of the outcomes of capitalism and we now need to address that, how does capitalism then come in and play a role in helping to rectify the situation that we're in now? So first of all, you know, thanks for the appreciation of Max Weber and the challenges of it. That's obviously where the title of the book comes from, which is A New Spirit of Capitalism. And that is deliberate, meaning it is a new spirit. There needs to be a new spirit. And I do want to come back to, um, you know, one of the core insights of Max Weber, not to be academic, but he highlighted that behind the force of markets were values, were culture, were beliefs. It isn't just something that is mechanical or law-like as in natural law. He highlighted that these are embedded in culture and also the choices that we make about our institutions. So I think that that's one of the broad themes that we can take from Max Weber. And particularly at this point in time, because we're going through the argument of the book is we're going through the fifth transition in the nature of capitalism in the last 500 years. This may sound academic, but when you step back and you, quite frankly, you look at the headlines of today and how people are confused, like, are we going into stagflation? Is it inflation? What's the labor market, global supply chains, high degrees of uncertainty behind that 
is actually we're going through a fundamental change in the nature of how the capitalist system works. Um, but what I note is that the real challenge that we are today and the book tries to frame up is we are entering in the 21st century. We're at a turning point. We have an opportunity to define what capitalism means for the 21st century. And quite frankly, we don't know what that is yet. We don't know if we will be successful at tackling the green revolution. We don't know if we will be successful at harnessing fully the power of the digital revolution in a constructive way. We do not know if we're going to be able to do all of these things to tackle some of the inequalities in our societies that are so pronounced and that have economic, social, political, and moral implications. And our decisions that we're going to be making over the next 10 or 15 years on these critical areas will play a large part in making that transition from a world of Milton Friedman, and we're being somewhat cartoonish here to simplify it that way, but it's it, framed up in terms of prevailing thoughts about the economy that some people call neoliberalism. What replaces it will be determined by us and how we answer these questions about green, digital, and inequality. I gotta get you to hang on for a second while we take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you. You talk about the stages of a new state of capitalism and, and you start off by saying there has to be a shared understanding. How do we get to that point? Because I think that you're absolutely right. If we can't create that foundation, how do we move forward? And, and so what are suggestions on how we can get to that shared understanding? Well, that is exactly the, the purpose or hope behind this effort. One contribution that the Trilateral Commission wants to make, and I should emphasize, the Trilateral Commission is a membership body of a few hundred people, leaders from the public sector, from the private sector, from the nonprofit, from academia, from, from Asia, Europe, and the United States that basically convene to discuss and debate major issues of the day and perhaps find common ground and th that was the spirit that animated this effort, which was exactly what are some common themes that we should be emphasizing at this point in time? And, and uh, this is a contribution. This is a contribution to the debate. And quite frankly, to put some stakes on the ground on some recommendations as well to begin moving forward. It's, no, it's not envisioned as the, the end of the conversation, but hopefully uh, an accelerant of a conversation. And, and there are broad themes that I'm sure we'd want to get into, which is on green, the idea that we do need to embrace that we have to get, have to, get to a net zero world by 2050. And there's a whole set of steps that we need to tackle there. Then when you think about digital, um, it can't be digital for the elites. There has to be the foundational commitment that everyone, everyone, and the implications of that statement, everyone, everyone should be able to tap into the benefits of the digital revolution that has a whole set of very profound consequences and then of course on inequality there is foundational to the perspective here is arguing for a new social compact in essence to define the new spirit of capitalism which is that capitalism should be geared not for for example total return to shareholder but truly but truly for equality of opportunity of all to chart a meaningful course in their own lives. That has a profound set of implications, that simple statement. 
Well, I think it does. You know, I can't help but think that going back to Aristotle, you know, he pointed out that the responsibility of all humans is to reach their potential. And uh, a failure to do so is a loss to all of society. And so I think that if there is a commitment to create uh, an environment where everybody has access to opportunity and that they can realize their potential, then we all win. And I think, Stuart, once again, I just want to say completely agree. And that is really one of the kind of foundational premises of this argument, which is that the new spirit of capitalism is not just right, it's also wise, okay? It is harnessing the powers of the market in a wise way to do exactly what you're outlining, which is not to benefit just some, but to benefit all, and actually to have that as a prevailing premise which is in making our major decisions, wherever we sit, private sector, public sector, nonprofit, will this decision actually make things better for, for not just me, not just for my institution, but is it moving us towards a world in which we are having true equality of opportunity with all the full diversity, of course. This is our second break. We'll be back in a moment. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you. On one level, that sounds like, well, you're talking about a, uh, a world that is much more reflective of a socialist perspective rather than a capitalist perspective. But in your book, you say, yes, we have to do that, but we also have to harness uh, what the energy and drive and innovation is that comes from individual investment. And so why is it important that we still create that environment where uh, people, uh, groups of people can come together and rally behind and invest in opportunities? And you know, you mentioned earlier the green economy. I think that there is enormous amount of potential, but we have to get to the, to the next stage where there really is huge investment in those kinds of technologies and, and advances. Well, I, I would make the argument um, caring for the well-being of, of all and striving for equality of opportunity for uplift and people to achieve their full potential. I think that that is um, when markets are working their best, that is what they do. And so I would argue that that is um, not necessarily a socialist perspective. I would view that as someone who's a, you know, spent a lot of time in the private sector and believes fiercely in the in the power of markets as well as individual freedom as well as community involvement. But that basic idea that these are, quite frankly, markets are proven to be the most successful engines of innovation. They are. That is just that they have been harnessing individual creativity, individual innovation to drive us forward. Um, so that is the core and it is a reorientation. Again, I want to come back to that idea of philosophically, it's broadening the perspective. And there have been some corporate groups and others around the world that have in the last decade have wrestled with these themes as well and said, look, we need a broader stakeholder perspective, or some people talk about long-term capitalism to solve these. There are many buzzwords, but fundamentally it is about harnessing the power of the markets, but making sure, as you highlighted, if every individual can reach their full potential, that's not just for the individual, that's a net benefit for all. Now, on, when you look at something like unleashing the, the green revolution, which again, th that has multiple components, 
but some of them are quite frankly the power of the private sector is trailblazing in some of the innovation and i just want to use that as an example just absolutely trailblazing the market incentives when aligned are incredibly powerful and what the government can what governments can do as argued in the book is well what are those in some cases catalytic investments in some cases there does need to be seed investment for certain innovations in other cases there needs to be the regulatory environment as i think you suggested that incentivizes certain behavior or rewards certain behavior to accelerate change um, and again not to advocate but just as an observation if you look at the changes in the united states in the last few weeks there's been that decision for a massive investment via tax mainly via tax credits to try and accelerate for example the development of uh, and deployment of electrical vehicles as a as a real example of what governments can do um but again ultimately the challenge is and as you highlighted there's a bit of irony perhaps here which is if you look at the challenges we have on let's say the environment front those are an output of the harnessing of fossil fuels to drive industrialization that goes back hundreds of years. That was a capitalist process that drove that. Now what we need to figure out in the 21st century is how to harness the same innovation, creativity, relentless pursuit of at time at self-interest, but that it again, as Adam Smith might observe, it yields benefits for many. So how do we create the structure or the rules of the road that allow us all to be working towards the same goal? You know, we talked about shared understanding, but there still needs to be that regulatory environment. And because there are so many different players, how do we get them together to figure out what those rules are and appreciating that we have a limited amount of time to do this? Absolutely. And I think, you know, as you highlighted, and the book is structured in terms of, and we've talked about, you know, building shared understanding of what it means, where we should be going, what are those investments in terms of resources, but also attention that we need to place to move forward on these different fronts of green, uh, digital and uh, inequality. And then there is though, what are the rules of the road? How do we, how do we work this way? Because that's what's evolved through hundreds of years. What are the rules of the road? So I think that here's where we confront some fundamental challenges. And as you highlighted, we have been stymied in some cases. I'm going to use green as an example, and but there are others. We could talk about digital or inequality, you know, corporate taxation around the world, et cetera. There are multiple examples. But if you look at green, where we've had a situation where we've tried to go, for example, global carbon regime, you know, pricing regimes, we haven't been successful. And we might, if we continue to go on that route for a global one-size-fits-all solution, we might never get there for all the diversity of interests that you're highlighting. We just, and, and that's kind of the frustration for multiple reasons. Uh, while there has been much progress, we're, we're using that as an example. So if in, in, the, uh, in the book and in the final report, what sometimes is advocated is, look, it's better to get half a loaf than a whole loaf. And I'm going to use an example from Green, which is instead of trying to get a full global consensus, Maybe it's okay if we go for a climate club of limited number of advanced economies that would work together cooperatively, a smaller group. It's easier, voluntary, not trying to do global, working through all countries at one point in time. 
And if there's a cooperation on, for example, a carbon pricing regime among a few industrialized countries, and this is basically what Europe is moving towards, you know, just to be clear, then that creates incentives for others to voluntarily join in because they won't be punished by tariffs, basically. And it creates market incentives for those to participate. But it also isn't at the same time saying we have to get all, you know, 200 countries around the world to agree to something before we can move forward on it. So I use that one example. But there are also, quite frankly, I do want to add, there are also a host of things because we recognize the diversity of capitalist systems around the world. There is great cultural diversity. There's great structural difference. There's great difference in legal regimes. There's no cookie cutter, cutter answer. However, however, in many cases, there are some fundamentals that can unleash the power of the private sector in various capitalist systems where individual firms will be solving a lot of these problems uh, in various regulatory regimes, but driving towards these common solutions. And that's really what we try and outline as well with respect for the full diversity. There's no sense that Sweden's regulatory regime is going to be the same as Canada's. I mean, it, you know, or, or let alone Malaysia's. So. This is our third and final break. We'll be right back. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you. Right. You know, you talked about carbon tax and I, uh, and, and it's, it can be used as an instrument to help to drive a regulatory environment, um, but it can also create barriers uh, because it winds up becoming a tax on the poor uh, because it drives up the price of everything. I, I think that as a model to point to, uh, I, I want to give a uh, uh, recognition to a trilateral commission member, Carol Taylor, who when she was the finance minister here in British Columbia introduced the first carbon tax in North America and she developed it in a manner in which that uh, the tax went in to uh, motivate changes, but then the funds from that tax were there to support those people who it was affecting the most in their cost of living and their ability to move forward and to have that kind of equity. I, I th what I think has happened with carbon taxes is there's a great idea, but now we see governments going, oh good, that's another source of revenue for us, and they put it into general revenue. Uh, these ideas, it's the quality of the ideas that really matter that can help to drive the right kind of investment and then move the, uh, to, to, to create the opportunities or ideas that will change the way in which we're functioning. I'm really glad you highlighted that example. We, we do, in our work, we actually highlight the Canadian pricing scheme on carbon. It is innovative and it's, it's held up as one of the examples to the globe. And one of the things that that is called for in the report is exactly what you're highlighting, which is there needs to be compensation mechanisms in place for exactly what you're suggesting, which is in the near term, for example, uh, the conversion to green uh, production of electricity will, in many cases, increase the cost of electricity, which, as you highlighted, hits the poorest the most, whether in developed economies or in the developing world. And so the question becomes exactly as you highlighted, it cannot be just a source of general revenue. It needs to be structured in a way so that the, the proceeds from any system are reinvested and also compensate for those who, quite frankly, then are on the struggling end. If there's a conversion to green energy that takes 10 years, 
well, we need to think about how that is managed because number one, it's fair. Number two, it's wise. Number two, it's just politically ne necessary as well because you can't say to the, you know, the least advantaged, you have to bear the burden of, for example, you know, increased electricity, which disproportionately, you know, affects your disposable income. So, you know, Canada has been an example and couldn't, couldn't agree more with the need for compensation mechanisms in the case of green. So one of the other things that I, I think is, is fundamental in this is that we have to move our mindset away from uh, political terms and financial cycles and have a much longer view. We have to be, learn to play the long game. And, and in some ways, that is one of the knocks against capitalism. No, it's what's the, sh uh, the quick return rather than what's the long game. And, and by having that longer game uh, vision, how does that help us to make the kinds of decisions that will push us towards you know, outcomes that will have much greater uh, benefit to a wider, much wider uh, group of people. Well, I think, Stuart, you, you again put your finger on some of the challenges of the, the era of capitalism that we're emerging from, which is there's an increased financialization of capitalism, uh, which led many people feel to short-termism, quarterly reports, satisfying the, the analysts on the street. Um, as an example, uh, but I think you put your finger on it exactly in the, you know, the new spirit needs to be exactly that more holistic, longer term, multiple stakeholder perspective. And then that quite frankly changes the incentives, but also just the, the way in which people analyze problems, right? I, and I say this as someone who's been in the private sector, that if your incentives are aligned for 90 day perspective, or 360 perspective, day perspective, amazingly enough, that's the way you're gonna behave. Whereas some of these challenges and opportunities that we're putting forward or suggesting, uh, hopefully it does shift the decision-making mindset, including also in the public sector as well, in the nonprofit sector as well, because these short-termism can affect those, um, for the longer-term, longer-haul, because th there is no easy answer to any of these challenges. As you highlighted, it is long-term, multiple policies pursued in parallel. There'll be some setbacks along the way. There'll be some experimentation. But that said, if we don't take a long-term goal mindset, quite frankly, we'll have a tyranny of small decisions. And in our older age, but our children will live in a very different world and in a world that I don't think we'd want our children to be living in. You have the fortunate position of working for a large international organization, Kinsey, uh, and it's my understanding they also offered support and insight into the, the, the development of the book. But, you know, when you complete this work, how is it that you're able to then share these insights and ideas with people who can influence others in positions of authority to say, this is the kind of mindset that we need to have moving forward? Because, you know, we can say, yes, government needs to do this, but then so do uh, a, a tremendous number of organizations, and there has to be this collective thought. How do we get that message out? Well, a couple things that I'll frame up, which is, you know, this work for the Trilateral Commission, uh, McKinsey and Company was a knowledge partner, along with Ernst & Young, along with many other members of the task force itself who were from all over the world, from multiple institutions, 
uh, provided knowledge support for this effort, but it's totally independent of those institutions. I just want to make sure that that's emphasized. But once again, Stuart, you're framing up exactly the challenge, which is this is why the Trilateral Commission wanted to take on this challenge was precisely because the feeling was it is global and it is also multiple sector. It touches private sector, nonprofit sector and government. And the Trilateral Commission membership is exactly that. And the, the basic idea as a starting point for d discussion and debate, and hopefully this book and the final report that's a shorter version that's on the Trilateral Commission's website, they are meant to stimulate that discussion and debate. And quite frankly, the members themselves are committed to, you know, putting these ideas on the table to stimulate debate in their home countries or in their home institutions. So it's a starting point, but this is what it's going to take, which is multiple uh, actors and, and conversations like the one we're having today, where we'll have differences of opinion, but there may be some fundamentals that we really need to focus on. And I think the work frames those up very well into, with a degree of modesty, at least frames up the issues, and then we can debate some of the specific recommendations. You know, in the book, I, I note that you touch on the idea that relationships matter. And I and the reason that I bring this up is that there was a point in in the course of my life where people would say, oh, don't take it personally, it's just business. But business is all about relationships. And I believe that that's the only way that we can come together and build things that have significance and in value. And so, you know, we're not saying I'm just going out to uh, maximize the bottom line. Why is it that relationships and without them, uh, we can't really build anything? We can't make these changes. Well, I think that, it, you know, once again, it, it takes us back to the title, which is a new spirit of capitalism. And ultimately, it's about our values and it's about our ideas and it's about then how we make those real in our institutions and how we lead our daily lives. Right. And I, I think, you know, Stuart, again, you're highlighting a report doesn't cause someone to fundamentally change their beliefs. It comes through dialogue. It comes through seeing others in action. It comes from being part of institutions that reinforce those beliefs. And that's inherently social, right? So we're, you know, we got ourselves into this through our beliefs and our arguments. And as we, as you mentioned, there's the, a little bit on the history of capitalism. Uh, we generate ideas and we debate those ideas. And it mattered hugely, again, to come back to a figure that you mentioned, Milton Friedman. There's the power of ideas that were communicated through a variety of leaders in business and in government, public sector, private sector, and it shaped how we viewed the world and behaved. Before that, we had John Maynard Keynes and others, right? We could go back. That is part of the story is we need those ideas, we need those debates, and ultimately it is how individuals um, change and come to grips with the fact that we're at a transition point we need to have a reassessment of ideas and part of it will be the creative act and i will say creative of seeing how we tackle these challenges will we tackle the green challenge will we tackle digitalization will we tackle inequality and how we do it what are the ideas that come to a fore and that's going to be based on relationships one-on-one -on -one and also in our institutions and in our politics for better or for worse
Well, well the, book the book is remarkably, remarkably well, well written, considering it is dense, dense with, with content. Uh, but, but you've done, you've a, done beautiful a beautiful job, job in laying, laying it out in, in a way, way that anybody, anybody can, can uh, grasp, grasp the concepts and ideas, ideas and then, and then start, start to talk, talk about, about them and hopefully start to start implement, implement them in their own organizations, organizations and share them with others. others. I thank, I thank you, so you so much for your time today and giving us a glimpse into the book. And more importantly, thank you for being one of the authors of A New Spirit of Capitalism. Well, thank, well, thank you very, you very much, much for the invitation, invitation Stuart, and it's a great, great pleasure, pleasure to have, to have this conversation. conversation. Thank you, thank so, you much. so much.